Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Do efforts to tackle coronavirus pose a threat to our civil liberties? And how worried should we be even if they do, given that, after all, our lives are literally at stake? To discuss these and related issues, I'm joined this time by Jim Killock, Executive Director of the Open Rights Group, which campaigns to preserve our digital rights and freedoms. Um, so a few years since we last met in person, Jim, back when I was an Open Rights Group advisory body. So it's lovely to virtually see you again this morning. Yeah, Let, likewise. Yeah. Let's kick off with the big issue of the moment, apps that mm. track our locations in order to help tackle coronavirus. As you're a civil liberties rather than a public health expert, let's maybe start off from that angle. What's your take on the apps that are starting to appear and how concerned we should be about their possible implications for our privacy and the like? I think there, there, are, there certainly are privacy concerns. They will affect some groups more than others. And I think that actually then will end up playing back into the health concerns more broadly, because the big mm -hmm. question is, will people use the app? And if there are large parts of the population that feel uncomfortable using that app, then take up is reduced and efficacy is reduced. So to my mind, in this crisis, uh, in these circumstances, in these particular circumstances, privacy and efficacy go mm -hmm. together. And you see that in the government's messaging. They're busy telling everybody that it's completely private. There's mm -hmm. all the data is anonymous and uh, there's nothing to worry about. And unfortunately, that's not true. And that, that's because of the legal structures as well as the technical structures. So if the Home Office or the police wanted to see who had been contacting whom, they could obtain the data lawfully mm -hmm. um, without your permission and uh, then start looking at who people had contacted. And that poses threats in the short term that, you know, the police might work out that this is a good way to uh, track particular criminals um, aid their investigations um, and in the long term it becomes problematic or and it's similarly we're saying we'll go for people who are perhaps uh, migrants uncertain of their legal status that kind of thing um, and that then gets worse um, long term as either data gets used for analysis purposes the, the NHS wants to use this for analysis purpose um, there's nothing really to stop the there's nothing really to stop the home office from commanding the data uh, be handed to them and then start using it for their sort of whatever they call their hostile environment policies these days <laughs> they may not call them that but they're sure enough uh, going ahead and doing those kinds of analysis so they could use that to start to try to pick up people they felt um were not here legally or, yeah. or wanted to shoot for other reasons and and i suspect that last element is the one where people's concerns really kick in because uh, I think for people who are keen protectors of civil liberties, the idea of police misusing data is a real concern. But I think we also have to be frank that that is often quite a hard point to persuade others who are less concerned about civil liberties about. And although we, we have seen it with, for example, the use of CCTV, where it started off as very much being this is something to help tackle terrorism and deal with the worst of crimes, and then it has become more and more controversial, rightly so, as it slipped into things like council snooping on residents uh, about whether they are uh, disposing of rubbish as they should do and, and, and the like. And it feels like contact tracing is a little bit like that, that there's a core purpose that we pretty much all would agree on is valuable, protecting our health. 
and there is also an extremity which we would pretty much most people would agree is inappropriate in terms of using that data but there's a lot of variations in between those two extremes as to where people would draw the line well it goes back to do you want people to use the app mm. i mean if we if we're happy for people who have recently entered the uk um who to, to not participate in contact tracing um and to then either not know they're ill or not be able to tell people they're ill then fine um do it in a way that doesn't guarantee their privacy and doesn't have the legal protections but we're all going to suffer i mean that that bluntly is a choice we have and i think that ought to be quite an easy sell to people it's like it isn't about your privacy necessarily this is about whether we want contact tracing to work as best as possible whether we can persuade all of the people possible to use the app yeah. like some people you know we don't know where people's lines are going to be um, but we should try to do that as a way that makes as most people comfortable as possible. And there's a direct self-interest in that, isn't it? In that right. it, it's not just that there's a community good, which there definitely is, the better that we can tackle coronavirus, but I myself will be able to be freer the more successfully we, we tackle coronavirus. And so I've got a direct interest in both using the app and wanting my neighbours to use the app. I, I guess there's a slight parallel then with, for example, the electoral register, where usually, um, although the legal situation is a little bit blurred because there are two versions of the electoral register, there's the version that's used just for elections and there's a version that can be sold and used for commercial purposes and the like. But the reason we have the two versions is that idea that there is, it is so important for the health of society overall, in this case, the democratic health rather than the literal health, that we have a functioning electoral register so elections can work, that we try to reassure people that if you join the electoral register, it's only a very, very limited set of things the data will be used for on the full register. It's not quite restricted just to elections because it can be used for by the police, for example. Um, so the analogy is maybe not quite uh, sort of perfect, but I think that idea that the more you restrict the use of something, the wider the take up, and hence the core thing becomes more successful is, you know, it is one that we're used to with the electoral register. The poll tax was a good example of how if people fear it was going to be used for something else, yeah, it the, yeah. the the register registration levels dropped, and in that sense, democracy was was damaged Absolutely. as a side effect, and. And, and th those those impacts were relatively minor compared to a failure to get contact tracing right for coronavirus. Yeah, that's right. So uh, there's a few other things on efficacy that actually benefit the privacy argument. They're not privacy arguments as such. They're just efficacy points. And um, the privacy, obviously, we can do it either legally or technically. And we've talked so far about the legal protections, yeah. uh, you know, that, 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 they, that don't exist. Um, but the other way you can improve confidence is to um, just not collect the data. And the world's kind of divided itself into two groups at this point. We have um, those people who want to use the Apple and Google decentralized model where, where the, you get a, ris a list of risky contacts and you see in your contact history whether those have happened to you. Have you met this person in, in essence? Of course, it's not a person, it's an ID. You never know who they are. Um, but you, you get the chance then to um, check yourself whether you, you're in having risky contact. 
in the NHS system, they do all of the matching centrally. And the result is that they get this huge database of everybody who is contacting um, people at risk. That may be useful from a sort of epidemiological point of view. That's the argument that they make. We could discuss that. I'm not the right person to discuss that. But the other system, which notify, you know, where you do the matching on the phone rather than centrally, is more private. And it's been chosen by Apple and Google as a way they want to do things. That means that over the coming months, this will be something that people choose when they update their phone. So you update your phone and it says, do you want contact tracing? Yes or no. You agree or not. And it's in. So that means that everybody over a period of months um, is kind of forced to make this, this choice. Whereas the route the NHS has got to go down is to persuade people to download the app, which is you know, a considerable barrier um, and not everyone will do it. Uh, so there's that part. And then there's energy efficiency questions, which you know, NHS says that they've overcome, but I don't think they can be fully overcome. Um, and of course, you know, bad, poor energy efficiency is going to be uh, something. Do you want to just expand on, on what that issue is for people who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I will try. But I mean, basically, Bluetooth isn't meant to work except when you're using the phone. Uh, actively on, on modern operating systems. So um, that means that it should not really work if you, your phone is idle. And the NHS claims to have ways of getting around this, but they will involve waking up the phone at the very least, which means you're, even if you aren't logged in or whatever, your screen's going to light up and lighten its energy and that uses battery. So it's kind of impossible for them to have no battery impacts, we think. Um, despite the claims they're making. In other countries, it's been so bad. Uh, you know, Norway, something like 40% of the phones have been, you know, kind of draining their battery extremely quickly. Um, in uh, Australia, they, they have to persuade people to constantly log into their phone and not let it go idle. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty bad in, in most countries, the way that they try to solve this problem. And as well as putting people off, just because shorter battery life is annoying and inconvenient. Of course, the risk then is therefore you think, okay, I'm not going to take part in this. It's not just that people are annoyed, it's that therefore efficacy gets hit again. I think on, on going back though to this sort of point about the two different models of one is essentially a big centralised database, which is the NHS's, NHSX's approach in the UK, um, or maybe more accurately, I should say, their approach in, in England and Wales, because the Scottish government has been making some slightly different noises, um, uh, versus this idea of decentralised data, which in many ways sounds instinctively better. You know, decentralised databases are normally less prone to decentralised data is normally less prone to abuse. The other factor, though, and this is one I find fascinating, is is also a choice between government versus the private sector. Because with the Google-Apple approach, we're placing much more trust in Google and Apple. With the centralised approach, we're placing much more trust in the NHS. Um, or at least you could frame oh, no, no. it that way. I guess you could frame it as actually we're placing a lot more trust in the Home Office, <laughs> for example. But, um, but, well, but I, I think there's a really interesting point here, which particularly in debates over civil liberties tends to get slightly glossed over 
which mm. is about when can you sensibly trust the private sector? So there are so definitely circumstances in which that's unwise to do so. But it strikes me that the risks for Apple and Google, if they don't do this right and deliver what they say they're going to do and keep the data as limited and as secure as they say, are massive, that actually probably the risks to them are greater than they are to the government. And therefore, I don't know. I mean, do you trust them more? Yeah. I mean, you've, you've certainly been critical of big tech firms often enough in so, the past. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, the question here is, what are they proposing and how do we know whether that's working or not? Um, in both systems, some of the, some of the code is, is open source. So I guess we'll see some of, uh, of what, what is released, probably less in Apple's case. I'm not an expert to know exactly where these lines are drawn, but in Google's case, we should see pretty much the whole thing because Android though it does have proprietary components is essentially is released in open source form for others to adopt. Um, in fact, I think that's probably the bigger problem with their approach is it's not that we can't trust what they say they'll do with the data. They're being very clear. It's kept on the phone. Um, there are encryption methods, which are well known. Um, there are plenty of people who handle Bluetooth systems that will be able to say, yes, this is how it works. I think the bigger problem is that where, while, Apple will just tell everyone to update their phones and that will pretty much happen. Um, perhaps with a little bit of government encouragement to do it quick. For Google, you know, they, they mostly don't direct, uh, directly control their phones, the phones using Android. So we're mostly gonna be reliant, particularly on, um, on the Samsung in the mm. UK to quickly take the code, adopt it, deploy it so that Samsung users get to enjoy this as well. And the same, unfortunately, goes for Huawei, yeah. <laughs> where you've got an even more complicated mm. problem, right? That the, the Apple and Google are not allowed to talk to Huawei. Huawei have to download the code off a server for themselves and work it out. So the th I think that actually the, the thing that should be happening right now is that governments should be collectively Firstly, the US, it's not going to happen, but the US should lift those embargoes right now in order that this stuff can happen. Uh, even if it's only limited to this project, they should make it legally possible for Google in particular to talk to Huawei yeah. so that this technology can be adopted in their phones globally uh, more easily. I mean, it could be done, but it would be helpful if people could talk to each other. Yeah. And the second thing is that the UK government, rather than spending all of its energies lobbying for its own particularist uh, view of technology should be spending time lobbying Apple and Google about how, what their adoption strategy is. How are they going to work with Samsung in particular, but also other operators, making sure that companies like Samsung have the capacity to roll this out in the UK, getting assurances that, that, that people are on it. I mean, that's what should be happening. Um, that would speed things up hugely um but i dare say you know because the, the government is currently not interested in the decentralized platforms that conversation is almost certainly not happening and i mean like you i think there are definitely some significant elements of the apple google approach which makes that more trustworthy than the government's approach partly the decentralized nature of it partly apple in particular its track record 
partly also because it's a global scheme that Apple and Google are developing, even more independent experts and hackers and the like are going to be pouring all over it. And actually, that's the way to have secure systems is to have lots of people try to break them or to try yeah. to find flaws with yeah. them or bugs. And that's a major protection. The one, I guess, like caveat I would add to that is I've generally been pretty impressed with NHSX, the team that has come up with you know, the, the app that, that it looks like the government is going to encourage us all to use here in the UK. Um, and certainly compared to some of the previous NHS IT uh, disasters, <laughs> NHSX seems to have a pretty good record. Um, I just wonder, do you have a sense of, I mean, maybe, you, maybe you've got a more critical view of NHSX's track record, or, or whether you have a sense of why it is that an organisation that after all has got the NHS branding to it, which, you know, rates pretty highly amongst people in Britain, <laughs> um, why, why they seem to have gone off on, on such a questionable, different course? So, it seems to be, I mean, firstly, I think Apple and Google's intervention was unexpected. Um, they, they, hadn't, they hadn't publicly talked about how they were going to use Bluetooth. Um, I think probably governments were hoping and expecting that they would make their centralized syst matching systems uh, much easier in the way they have done for the decentralized versions. So perhaps, you know, Google and Apple would have allowed people to share not just their own data about their own identifiers, but the identifiers of people they've met. And if they'd done that, then the NHS path would seem a lot more reasonable because international operability would, you know, matching people across borders would work. You wouldn't have this kind of digital hard border between Northern Ireland and, and, and the South, which is emerging. Um, those sorts of problems, you know, problems of international travel, you know, which was a huge vector in, mm -hmm. in, in, you know, in, in causing this in the first place, that's not going to go away. Um, so it'd be kind of sensible to have something easy to use that everyone could use. But at the point that NHS were making their critical decisions, they had no knowledge of that. So I think in some ways this isn't really about them making a mistake. It's just, this is the path they went down. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that they, have opted to do um, essentially self-reporting of uh, illness. So the way this works is you report your symptoms into the app and then you're asked to talk to a human being and the human being verifies that you have or likely to have COVID-19. That then allows you to uh, share your contact history with NHS yeah. um, and, and that's how the and then everyone's notified. So they they went down that path. That's not allowed in the Apple and Google system. It, that they insist, as I understand it, that this has to be done on the basis of actual verified testing. Um, and every other government in the world has gone down the path of actual verified testing. So I think the two motivators are either the NHS's explanation that they think that um, diagnosis is quicker than tests so you get the data and share it quicker um, and therefore that that makes sense but also in that circumstance you need to be able to roll back you need to be able to tell people actually this person wasn't infected uh, um, and they also need to detect sheets 
in that system. So again, you need to do it centralized because, you know, um, some 17 or 18 year old sixth former decides it would be fun to, uh, you know, knock out the school for a week. Yeah. Maybe uh, so they're, they're not looking forward to having to do their exams and they think, well, <laughs> let's see if I can get my school closed down for a week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you get some big bunch of people all reporting illness and it's like, you know, that sort of thing um, is, you know, is, is wide open mm. in this system. So, and people can always say, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I mean, what, what's the government going to do? It, it, it can't go around prosecuting everyone who, who lies uh, after pulling pranks like that. Um, so it's, the, the government feels that it wants to pull these people out and uh, detect them. And again, that's much, much harder in a decentralized system because you know very little about the individuals. And, and the Google Apple approach sidesteps that by relying on testing. Which exactly leads to the other possible explanation because again there's been there's a little bit of growing controversy about the extent to which the initial advice on how we should behave may have been driven by the availability or not of testing in sufficient volume in the early stages um, of the crisis and that's something I, I very much hope a public inquiry at some point will really you know, be able to dig into and help un understand but it seems plausible that given all the struggles the government has had to get testing up to the levels that you know, the targets it set for itself, that an approach that is less reliant on testing might seem, you know, you can see why a group of people in a room at some point a few weeks ago would have thought, you know what, we need to go for the route that's going to be less dependent on the test numbers. Yeah, I think that's right. So whether, whether it is, uh, you know, their explanation that uh, it, we, we do it faster or whether it's a, a, the, the more prosaic, explanation that they hadn't got their uh, act together on testing. Um, either of those are a motivation for centralizing the data set in order to detect uh, fraudulent reports. So, And of course, would, when a group yeah. of people are making a decision, it can be a mix of reasons. You know, Absolutely. it's rarely that every person in the room has exactly the same reason they have for coming to a conclusion, even if they all share the conclusion. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think, um, nevertheless, I think it, it will become, you know, as the numbers reduce and testing is a more practical uh, thing to do uh, when notifications appear, I think the decentralized approach is just going to make more and more sense over time. So I think, I think the, there is a possibility they just have a rethink at some point. Um, but if they don't, then we have to rely on the legal protections, which are better than nothing, but I don't think are necessarily going to be completely persuasive for people who are already sceptical. That, that's the problem. I think if you look at the sort of commentary on Twitter as well, I think there's a the class of people who are really angry about uh, Vote Leave and Dominic Cummings and the fact that all the contracts seem to be going to people involved in Vote, vote Leave. So there's a class of people there who sometimes mistakenly are assuming that the money is going to companies like Palantir and faculty and so on to develop this app, which isn't true. Um, this, this app hasn't actually been developed by the sort of internal contacts of the vote leave camp, but other aspects of the health system right now are being developed by people like that. And that is creating a sort of narrative under the, under the bonnet, so, so to speak on in the sort of, slightly less informed commentariat on Twitter that this is really not to be trusted because Dominic Cummings. 
and I, I, I mean that that is unfortunately quite a persuasive argument for many people. I think um, you can certainly understand why people would would think that. Um, and if particularly if you look at say the Home Office's track record, I think you know it's quite easy to see how people might be wary about is this data in some way going to end up being misused in terms of yeah. Going back to your point from earlier, trying to recreate a hostile environment, uh, yeah. for example. But and and you know, I, I I can imagine there could be a really difficult decision to make when it comes to if maybe after lockdown has eased, there is some tragedy involving a young child disappearing, and the police then say, "Ah, oh, well, you know this system that we've got that's got lots of data about who has been where, etc." Now, of course, at the moment the police can access a lot of data around that in terms of location data, uh, accessing records from mobile phones, cell masks to work out who was in what area. And that often is a really important part of the criminal justice system. And I guess what is though a little bit different with that is that there's a bit of a track record. And although there have definitely been issues about how such data is used and protected, we do have a little bit of a track record and you know campaigners like yourselves and your colleagues at the open rights group sort of are quite familiar with the with the issues the big risk with a new system is is the unknowns and what we what we've not yet really had a chance to work out um or, or get to the bottom of i mean how much of a concern is yeah. that for you that p potential sort of scope creep that catches us out well i think i think there is a lot of potential if you, you sort of point out the law enforcement angle on this which is important the other aspect is just what happens in the COVID-19 crisis. Um, do we start, you know, the government's already talked about immunity passports, for instance. Um, this data set would no doubt be pretty useful in uh, identifying who might be entitled to an immunity passport. So if the government really wants to push them, it might say, well, let's use the data here to contact people who we think may have been effect infected or were infected or, or whatever. Um, so, or, or maybe it uses them to sort of, you know, say where they definitely shouldn't be given them or something like that, right? There's all, all kinds of ways that data might be used in that relation to that. Um, there's also, you know, horrendous possibilities around, uh, you know, if you haven't got the app, you can't get on the bus, uh, you know, you can't go into the library or whatever, um, which have happened, has happened in, in China, for instance. So, you know, if, if we're going to make sure we don't make this sort of actually quite compulsory for certain sorts of service access or uh, employment access, then it's better to be really, really clear in legal terms that this won't happen, which is what Australia have done. So they got criticised for building a central database. Um, they reacted by having a safeguards bill to spell out what, how the data could and couldn't be used. Um, as it goes, they're also abandoning the central approach, but they're doing it in a bit. Um, and no, no doubt that's because of the sort of feature advantages of, of, of the Apple Google technology rather than a philosophical attachment to privacy. But um, more about battery life in that sense. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, they've just had a whole host of simple technical problems and it's been very embarrassing and they no doubt need to get people um, to use, you know, feel they need to get people to use the app. So backing off and doing it a different way. Um, we might not have that trouble in the UK, but there might be other reasons why, why we start getting worried.
So push comes to shove, when you get the, whether it's the TV ad or the pop-up notification on your phone with the NHS's app, will you install it and use it? Well, I mean, from my own point of view, I think, I don't think I've got anything to worry about using it. So I don't feel like I should tell other people not to use it or that I should sort of say absolutely no. Hmm. I will be very cross if I'm in a situation where my choice is to use something where there are no legal guarantees about how the data is used. And therefore I may be putting others at risk because of what I do. Mm. Um, and, or, or not, and therefore you know, my, my choice is to so either do that or not use the app. I'll be very cross if that is the choice I'm being made to make. Uh, and I guess that in that circumstance, I might, I might think carefully about, um, I might not, yeah. but, um, you know, in principle, I want to install this app. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. I, I want to use this thing. I think other people should want to use it. Um, so what I'm hoping is they will make the right choices uh, legally or technically. And hopefully what, what is produces a situation where I don't feel I'm, you know, causing problems by using it. And to avoid facing that dilemma, just to sort of recap, what are the key things then that the Open Rights Group want, would want to see happen with this app? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, right at the moment, we're looking for transparency. It's always the way, isn't it? Um, but we've been asking for the data protection impact assessment for, you know, quite a while now. And they, the, the NHSX have been promising it along with source code um, and other documentation and you know, we hope this will be released in, in the in the coming days and um, that will then allow us to start understanding what the trade-offs really are what the mitigations are what the remaining privacy risks are uh, you know we've talked about the legal ones but there are other privacy risks one of which is you get falsely notified right we talked about that risk mm. that's really hard to mitigate um, so we need to understand a little bit about what their proposed approach is to that and other other sorts of problems and um, we also need to know a bit more about what the ICO has uh, done here because the it does seem that the NHSX team made some wrong assumptions about what the ICO's role needed to be uh, because they're involved in high-risk pro, um, processing of data which some of which the risks cannot be fully mitigated in those circumstances they need to consult the information commissioner um, it's a legal requirement under Article 36 of GDPR. Um, and they, as of Monday, they hadn't done that. And the uh, Information Commissioner told Parliament that twice. She said, I am expecting to see the data protection impact assessment, at, which is a legal duty. Right? She, she said that. Didn't get widely picked up. But what she's saying is, uh, you know, NHSX, to translate, NHSX haven't done their job. They haven't fulfilled their data protection legal requirements. I haven't seen the key document here you're releasing in three days. Mm. That was the communication. And, you know, that should upset us. Mm. Uh, and it certainly upset us. Uh, so we've been asking for that, for information about that to understand what, what exactly is going on. Once we've seen those documents, we'll then see about what needs to happen next. Um, it may be that what we ask for is a, 
is make a legal challenge to require uh, privacy guarantees that are stronger than the ones that, that are available. Or it may be that we um, challenge aspects of the data management. We'll have to see. It may be that we're entirely satisfied that they've done everything possible and the, challenge, the things we need are, are more about what legislators do and not things we can easily bring up, certainly not within time, bring a legal challenge up. But we'll, we'll have to examine the whole thing. But it's information we need to understand what we can press for and where, how best to press for it. Brilliant. Fantastic. That's been really fascinating, Jim. I guess we should end with a plug for people to join the Open Rights Group to help uh, give more power uh, to that. I've been a member of ORG since the early days. Um, not quite always agreed with everything that ORG said. <laughs> definitely, I think definitely we're a better and healthier society for the Open Rights Group's existence and for your campaigning efforts. Um, I'm you. sure we will uh, disagree again one or two times in the future. <laughs> about political marketing but there's a lot uh, a lot that we agree on uh, do you want to just briefly say how people can join the open rights group yeah so uh, if you go to openrightsgroup.org um and then forward slash join uh, that's where the join page is uh you can join for as little as you like so you know one or two pounds a month a little bit more if you can afford it um we rely on members i mean that that's the short and long of it we're able to do the work we do because we have a lot of people uh, paying us money which helps us run our campaigns and do our research um, and you know i'm sure that liberal democrat members are probably one of the biggest certainly uh, i've heard anecdotally we're one of the biggest overlaps between liberal democrats and, and other groups um, and i think that you know that's for a very strong reason we believe in liberty so do the liberal democrats um, there aren't many political parties that fight for human rights enforcement and believe that it's a, a, a truly important consideration as opposed to something that, that you have lip service to and occasionally find awkward. Um, you, you know, I have to say, personally, I, I miss the contingent of, of Liberal Democrats we had a few years ago. I think it may, has made a huge difference to uh, UK politics when we had that, including in government, a number of things that we pushed for, like data protect, um, data retention limitations, uh, reforms of the Investigative Powers Act, um, even more mundane things like not kicking people off the internet for, you know, copyright allegations uh, that couldn't be substantiated. Those sorts of things are things that we won because of Liberal Democrat help. Um, we couldn't have done it without the Liberal Democrats and we struggle now often to get those points across as a result of the lack of Liberal Democrats. So um, I'm not, of course we need the other parties too and we need, you know, people like David Davis um, and other people like perhaps uh, some people in the Labour Party as well who, who are able to make some of those points. But yeah it would be helpful let's say to have a slightly broader representation than we have at the moment of people who are really concerned about these issues so you know that wants to be part of political kind <laughs> 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 words about us jim and yeah i definitely yeah. encourage other listeners to go and join the open rights group i'll include the link uh, in the show notes um you can also find jim on twitter at jim killock myself at mark pack and this podcast at Barchart Podcast. Thanks very much for your time, Jim. And if people like listening to this show, 
please do tell others about the podcast or rate or review it in your favourite podcast app. Thanks very much.